For any size gift before Ash Wednesday, February 14th, we'll send you my 2024 Lenten devotional booklet. Make a secure online donation at thewordendures.org or make your check payable to The Word Endures and send it to Box 616, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. And we'll send you my new devotional book for Lent, By Your Holy Cross. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF is a recognized service organization of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, dedicated to translating and publishing the books of our Lutheran faith into more than 100 languages for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Learn how you can take part in their work at lhfmissions.org. Welcome to The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. If Bede's correct, that makes this letter the earliest writing of the New Testament and dates it as far back as A.D. 35 or so, a mere three years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. Pastor Whedon is leading us in a study of the book of James. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Greetings, people of my God. Last time we wrapped up our study of that delightful little book, Ruth. We heard how Boaz took Ruth as his wife and how he went into her, words reminiscent of Judah's unwitting proposal to Tamar, and how the Lord then granted her conception. At the birth of the child from Ruth, the ladies of Bethlehem were all abuzz with joy. They blessed the Lord for giving to Naomi a child, a redeemer, who would be renowned in Israel. He'd be a restorer of life. And we pondered how that showed this child to be a type of our Lord Jesus Christ and also a nourisher of her old age. The ladies of Bethlehem went on to praise Ruth in her love and faithfulness to Naomi as better even than seven sons. Naomi, recall, received the little child onto her lap and became his nurse, or as we'd say, his nanny. She would look after him. Then the sacred writer told us that the child had been given a name by the women. They called him Obed, which means servant. This is another way that the child is a type. For Jesus fulfills the servant songs of Isaiah in himself and comes among us not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Finally, the genealogy was rehearsed again, backing up once more to Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah, and then going forward all the way down to the third generation. Boaz's son was Obed, Obed's son was Jesse, and Jesse's son was David. Thus, the narrative is prepared for the story of David and God's gracious promises to him and his descendants, which will occupy the next six books of the Bible. So, off to the book of James, where the big question from the get-go is, who is James? The New Testament gives that name to more than one man. First, of course, there is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, who was martyred by Herod, as we read in Acts chapter 12. The ancient fathers and almost all modern scholars are quite agreed, this is not that James. But Jesus, recall, 
also had another disciple who was named James. In the list of the disciples, he's identified in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts as the son of Alphaeus. More on that in a minute. Modern scholars especially posit that there's a third James in the New Testament. He's the one we meet in Acts 15 at the Great Council in Jerusalem. He's the one Paul refers to in Galatians 1.19 as James, the Lord's brother. And Jude identifies him in Jude 1 as his brother. So the modern consensus is that this must be the James who is referred to in Mark 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, let's notice something interesting about the narratives of the cross and the resurrection. There, we meet a woman who is identified as Mary the mother of James. For example, Matthew says that some women were watching the crucifixion from a distance, Matthew 27, verse 56, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. I would ask, if that were a reference to the Virgin Mary, would you call her at the cross the mother of James and Joseph? Or... Would you call her, as we have in John 19, his, that is, Jesus's mother? But there's no question that Matthew and Mark speak of Jesus having brothers named James and Joseph's, that is, little Joseph. So now, go back to what we noted in Ruth about the term brother in the Old Testament. Do you remember how Abraham could call Lot, who was his nephew, his brother in Genesis 13? Do you remember how Boaz referred to his dead cousin Elimelech as our brother when talking to the unnamed relative? You see, the word in biblical usage does not demand the sense of a literal sibling born from the same mother, but it can simply indicate a near relation. So I posit that it is entirely possible that this James, who authored the book we're about to study, who is identified as the brother of the Lord and son of a woman named Mary, with brothers named Jude and Joseph and Joseph, is simply a near kinsman to our Lord Jesus. And remember, we know from John 19, verse 25, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a sister or sister-in-law or close relative, also named Mary. Now, the Weimarische Bibelwerk, that great Lutheran study Bible from the 17th century prepared under the theological auspices of Johann Gerhardt, will add a gloss on the name James in the first verse of this epistle. And it says the following, James, called the less, the son of Alphaeus and Mary, the relative of Christ, according to Galatians 1.19, because of their near blood relationship, his mother being Christ's mother's sister. Interesting, no? If Gerhardt and company are correct, and fair warning, I think they usually are, that means that they're not three Jameses, but two in the New Testament, and that James the less, which also means like the shorter or maybe the younger, James the Less is the apostle mentioned in the lists as the son of Alphaeus. He's then the near relative to Jesus through his mother and therefore also the man called 
the brother of Jesus in the New Testament. But wait, you say, doesn't John 7 verse 5 inform us that not even his brothers believed in him? Well, what if the brothers spoken of in that chapter were Simon and Joseph, while James and Jude were actually among his disciples? We'll have to wait for the light of glory to get it all sorted out for sure, but for the purposes of our study, I'm running with Gerhardt and company's conclusion that James the Less and James the brother of our Lord are identical and that his father Alphaeus was also known as Clopas. Hopefully, that's clear as mud and your eyes didn't glaze over too much as we covered it. The Lutheran Study Bible suggests that this writing, the book of James, is roughly from about 50 A.D., though, as we'll hear shortly, the venerable Bede among the fathers would date it even earlier to shortly after A.D. 35. This letter belongs to the Catholic epistles, that is, to the letters to all churches, because it was not addressed to a specific congregation or a specific individual. James was writing to Christians in general. And with that, let's dive into the text for today. A reading from James, the first chapter, beginning at the first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect incomplete, lacking nothing. James 1, 1 1-4. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, shepherd of your people, you raised up James the just, brother of our Lord, to lead and guide your church. Grant that we may follow his example of prayer and reconciliation and be strengthened by the witness of his death. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Ready to ponder today's reading? Let's give it our undivided attention. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant, of course, works, but it's better rendered, I think, slave. This is doulos in Greek. That is, one whose own will has been set aside to do the will of his master. And note how James simply coordinates God, Yahweh, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls this man that he had grown up with both Lord and Christ. And that mirrors St. Peter's words in Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. James does not presume to refer to himself as the Lord's brother. That's not the primary relationship anymore. Jesus is now his Lord, his master, and he is perfectly content to simply be known as Jesus' slave. Verse 1 continued. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, it's pretty clear from the New Testament that while James approved and supported the mission to the Gentiles, his own ministry and work centered chiefly on his fellow Jews. Thus, this epistle seems to be aimed primarily at Jewish believers in Jesus. Thus, it gives us a beautiful glimpse into the church of those earliest days when it was primarily composed of faithful, circumcised Jews who had come to realize through the gospel 
that the Old Testament scriptures, to which they always had given their devoted hearing, were all about and were all fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Messiah and who brought about a new life through the forgiveness of sins. So, the 12 tribes refers to Jacob's 12 sons and the tribes that ultimately derive from them. But what is this dispersion? Well, think of John 7, verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Therefore, dispersion clearly means the scattered Jewish communities that had sprung up all throughout the ancient world. Do you remember how on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews gathered in Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean basin and even beyond? Check out Acts 2 verses 5 through 11. But it might also be a reference to something more specific. If the Venerable Bede, the great teacher of England in the 7th century, is correct. He writes, We read that when Stephen was martyred, a great persecution of the church broke out at Jerusalem, and they that were there were scattered across the countryside of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. James then wrote this letter to those who had been scattered because they had suffered persecution for the sake of righteousness. If Bede's correct, that makes this letter the earliest writing of the New Testament and dates it as far back as A.D. 35 or so, a mere three years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The chief problem with that, though, is the difficulty the book had in establishing its place in the canon. Eusebius classifies it among the books that were spoken against because some were just not sure of its apostolic origins. Now, greetings is more literally the verb rejoice, which was used as a greeting. But given the next verse, I think it begs to be left as rejoice. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If Bede is right, James gets to work right away comforting his hearers in the wake of the persecutions that erupted after Stephen's death. He's convinced that they are all causes for joy, not for griping or complaining. This is the spirit of the apostles, James among them, evinced in Acts 5 verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And of course, James had heard the Lord Jesus himself promise, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First of all, please note what the suffering is testing, not their strength, not their willpower, not anything like that. Rather, it tests faith. And testing here should be heard in the sense of purifying precious metals, when, because of their faith, they get tossed into the fire of affliction, they don't come out the loser. God works through the fiery trial to strengthen them in their faith and to show them 
that when they hold tight to Jesus, there's absolutely nothing that they lack. The Christians discover this under the cross. The Weimarische Bibelwerk summarizes these verses by drawing from them this teaching, that we, that is, we Christians, should endure or bear patiently the temptation, the various tribulations, adversities, and persecutions which come our way, because such is a beautiful fruit of genuine faith, and it has a gracious reward, the crown of eternal life and everlasting blessedness. James is thus tracking right along with St. Paul's words in Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's what we're going to call a halt for today. Next up, James will tell those who are struggling to understand all this to just ask God for wisdom. He gives to all lavishly, without reproach. But remember, he adds, to ask in faith. For if you doubt, you're like the waves of the sea, driven this way and that. And so, such a double-minded man should not expect to receive anything. He then glories in the great reversals the gospel brings. The low are lifted high, and the rich are brought down in humiliation. All are to remember that we pass away like grass under the scorching heat of the noonday sun. So, it's a mercy of God indeed, when the rich are, through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, reminded of the things that truly do last and that are permanent and they fix their heart on those. Till next time, people loved by God, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a listener-supported program. You can donate by check. Make your check payable to The Word Endures and send it to Box 616, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also make a secure online contribution at thewordendures.org. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.